Hi, I'm Derek Jensen. This is Resistance Radio on the Progressive Radio Network. My guest today is Ben Goldfarb. He's an independent environmental journalist and fiction writer. He's the author of Eager, The Surprising Secret Life of Beavers and Why They Matter, Chelsea Green Publishing, which the Washington Post called a masterpiece of a treatise on the natural world. He covers wildlife conservation, marine science, and public lands management, but he'll tackle any story with environmental bent and some without. So first, thank you for your work, and second, thank you for being on the program. Thanks for having me, Derek. I appreciate it. So, who are beavers? <laughs> it's a it's a great question. Uh, beavers are these extraordinary landscape scale agents of transformation. They're you know, of course, they're they're rodents, um, and they they build dams. We all we all know that. And those dams, which create ponds and wetlands, turn out to be tremendously important for for every member or virtually every member of the biological community you know from the the moose that cool off in them to the the amphibians frogs and salamanders that breed in them to the juvenile fish that shelter in them to the the waterfowl that nest around them beavers turn out to be this essential pillar uh, of so many ecological communities so i think that's First and foremost, who beavers are is, is this, this keystone species uh, responsible for supporting so much other life in, in North America and Europe. So before we, before we go on, let's talk about their range, their natural range, not introduced range yet. Yeah. Um, to where are beavers uh, natural or natural and what is their and, – and how many species are there? Yeah. So there are, there are two species of beavers. There's Castor canadensis, which is the North American beaver. Uh, and then there's Castor fiber, which is the Eurasian beaver. They're very closely related. Uh, they don't interbreed. They, they can't interbreed, but they, but they are sort of visually indistinguishable for, for most people. Uh, so the North American beaver, um, that the historically the, the range was, was basically, uh, you know, northern Mexico, to the to the tundra line essentially i mean every uh every state in in the continental united states and and uh, really nearly the entirety of canada uh had had beavers uh and they were incredibly abundant uh and in over in europe uh again beavers beavers covered uh you know really nearly the entirety of, of the, the european continent and most of asia as well there were there were beavers as far east as the korean peninsula historically which which uh, most people don't realize uh so this was this was once uh, an extraordinarily abundant animal and uh, we're we're gradually getting back to that point so again before we go to what happened to conquest um can you tell me the the average size of a beaver and how big is a huge one and um, also, uh, I've heard they run in a variety of colors. Yeah. So, uh, you know, it's a typical, a typical adult beaver is probably going to be 50 to 60 pounds. Um, but, you know, there, you'll see 70 pounders is not unusual, which I, which I think is, is much bigger than most people realize. You know, I think when, when most people see beavers, they just see, uh, a head moving across the water at twilight, you know, with, with the rest of the body submerged. And you don't quite realize that these are really some very hefty, powerful animals. Uh, you know, they, they weigh as much as, you know, as many, uh, decent sized domestic dogs. Um, they do come in a variety of colors that, you know, they sort of, uh, you know, you'll see, you'll see beavers that are, you know, as, as light as, uh, you know, as, as like balsa wood and as dark as, as dark chocolate, you know, so they, they definitely come in, in this sort of range of colors within the, the general brown spectrum. 
and how long do they do they normally live and um who eats them yeah 12 so in the wild you know 12 to 15 years would be it would be a pretty old beaver uh they're eaten by all kinds of large carnivores wolves love beavers and in some places uh beavers are actually the majority of wolf summertime diets which i think that people people don't really realize just how uh what an important food staple beavers are for for wolves in places where wolves and beavers co-occur uh bears grizzly grizzly and black bears both eat beavers cougars love beavers uh i saw a picture recently of of a lynx uh that had killed a beaver which was which was pretty impressive um and you know as as coyotes occupy more and more of of uh the North American landmass, they've become a really significant beaver predator as well. So, you know, one, one biologist described beavers to me as, as a, uh, a fat, slow, smelly package of meat. Uh, so there's certainly uh, a lot out there that, that preys on them. And do they, do they like sneak up on them when they're on the shore basically? Cause I'm guessing that's that, that, that in the, in the pond they're, they're much more impervious to, to predators. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a really good question. There's a, there's a, a PhD student uh, named Tom Gable who's studying this right now. How do predators, especially wolves, kill beavers? And uh, there was really an amazing, he actually shot some amazing footage um, of, of a wolf. Uh, so he, he kind of came across this wolf that was standing in the middle of a logging road uh, around Voyagers National Park in Minnesota. And the wolf was sort of staring intently at a stream. Uh, and, you know, 15 minutes or so went by. And then suddenly the, the wolf lunged into the stream Came back out on the road with a with a beaver uh, in its jaws, and then kind of dropped the beaver on the road, still alive. And the two animals sort of faced off for a few minutes, and and finally the the wolf killed the beaver. So that was a pretty cool example of of you know wolves. Uh, I mean, clearly this wolf had staked out this stream, knew that beavers were were moving back and forth across it, set up this uh, this this very patient ambush, and uh, and nabbed one. So you know you also hear about you hear about uh, bears that actually tear into beaver lodges. Um, so you know, predators have all kinds of all kinds of interesting strategies for uh, for hunting these guys because they are they are challenging prey in some respects because of course they you know they build these dams to create these ponds and wetlands so that they can be safe. You know, the the, the pond is is a pretty good stronghold, uh, so they're not, they're not always they're not always the easiest animal to hunt. Um, but predators have clearly evolved all kinds of all kinds of strategies for uh, for eating these delectable rodents. Um, one last question before we go to to what happened when Europeans came to this continent, which is something I've always wondered is how is it that concrete dams, of course, um, harm anadromous fish, and we don't need to make that case because it's so obvious. But beaver dams, um, what? How do anadromous fish deal with beaver dams? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. And certainly, you know, certainly there there are there are definitely fish biologists out there who. Um, who dislike beavers or, or, I mean, I mean, there, you know, there, there are programs out there, uh, that involve destroying beaver dams or, and even killing beavers, um, to, to, uh, promote anadromous fish passage. And, and to me, that's just, that's ridiculous. There, there's, um, so beaver dams, of course, we know that they're not, they're not impermeable, right? Unlike a concrete dam, there's, there's plenty of water moving through a, a beaver dam and, and fish are often capable of actually wriggling through the dam itself, through the kind of the, the woody framework of the dam. 
Um, I, I know scientists who have actually observed that in action. Uh, you know, beaver, fish are fish are capable of jumping beaver dams at uh, at at uh, you know certain certain beaver dams. Um, that's definitely been documented. Uh, and then they can also uh, swim around beaver dams. You know, oftentimes in a, in a beaver stream, you know, you'll have you'll have this kind of multi-threaded, multi-channel stream. Uh, where, you know, maybe one channel is impounded by a beaver dam, but there are other side channels that, uh, circumnavigate it. Um, so to me, you know, it's, it's true that at, at very low water, uh, beaver dams can pose temporary barriers to fish, to fish passage. Um, but ultimately, uh, fish are able to surmount these things without, without too much trouble. Um, I mean, there's, there's one study in Oregon that, that documented, uh, steelhead passing more than 200 beaver dams, individual steelhead, crossing uh, a couple hundred beaver dams so they clearly figure out ways uh, around them and in fact you know we also we know quite conclusively that uh, that beaver dams and the, the kind of the fantastic ponds wetlands side channels backwaters uh, that they create are are incredible juvenile salmon habitat that beaver occupancy and, and salmon production have been very closely linked uh, and we know that beavers are great for fish so um, yeah, there's, you know, there's definitely a lot of, a lot of fish related beaver opposition out there, but increasingly, uh, agencies like, like the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, um, are adopting or promoting, promoting beaver restoration as a tool for salmon recovery because they create such great salmon habitat. Yeah, the opposition, frankly, seems kind of absurd to me. They've, they evolved together and they, they've been getting along for hundreds of thousands, if not millions of years. Yeah, the, the the bumper sticker I really like uh, is it says uh, "Beavers taught salmon to jump," which I think is oh, kind of captures that. captures the co-evolutionary relationship there. So I know I've said this a half dozen times, but yet one more question before we go to the conquest, <laughs> which sure. is, um, what would be an example? There's a there's a salmon bearing stream thirty yards from where I'm sitting, mm. and it has beaver on it further down, and I'm always sort of daydreaming that they're going to move their way up. So first question. Is what are the smallest streams that beavers ever live on? This stream is maybe five feet wide and two feet deep. And then also what is the larger, we don't have to be the world record, but the sort of larger end of beaver dams. How big are beaver dams from tiniest to small to largest? Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a good question. So, so the, the, the world's, well, I'll tell you that the, the, the largest beaver dam ever, ever recorded, uh, is, is in Alberta, uh, and that's a, a half mile long or so and is visible from space. Uh, so these things can be, can be pretty massive. Uh, but, you know, more typically, I mean, you'll, you know, uh, so usually, uh, a beaver colony will build a, a primary dam, uh, and then a number of kind of secondary dams. And that primary dam, which, which sort of does the bulk of the water storage work, um, you know, is, is typically, you'll often see that a couple hundred feet, uh, even is, is, you know, is kind of a large primary dam. Um, as for the, the smallest, I mean, I mean, they would, you know, the, it, to me, it sounds like that your your stream is is uh, is is suitable. Um, you know, more. I think that, I mean, the kind of their amazing talent, of course, is that they're they're almost they're almost capable of creating water seemingly from nothing. You know, I've, I've heard and seen so many stories of beavers taking these these pathetic little seasonal trickles, you know, and and by slowing water down and backing it up and and sort of just prolonging the it's the sort of the residency time of the water. Um, you know, they take these these pitiful little streams and turn them into kind of robust uh perennial flows. Um so I, I think that beavers would, would be okay on on your stream. I think that more important than kind of the volume of water is really the gradient of the stream, right? If you've got a, a, a very steep stream, 
that water is really rushing down in, in spring, uh, it's going to be hard for them to, to uh, build a, a, a lasting dam there. Um, so I think that more, even more important than the volume of the flow is, is kind of the, the power of the flow, uh, because, because dams do wash out, and if the steam is too steep, or, uh, uh, too steep rather, um, beavers won't be happy there. Well, I hope they make it up then, because I live on a coastal plain, so it's, uh, the gradient's very low. Yeah, that's, that sounds like good habitat to me. So, um, let's get to, to, to conquest, and, Something that both breaks my heart and I think is one of the most important things to do is to recognize who was here before. In mm. Northern California, for example, prior to conquest, you would routinely see every, if you were by a river, every 15 minutes you'd probably see a grizzly bear. Mm, yeah. And we know about the flocks of passenger pigeons so large they darken the sky for days at a time. The flocks of Eskimo curlews. I was reading not very long ago about down by Houston, uh, very early European explorers would see a single pack of wolves that would be several hundred. Mm, wow. And, and, you know, we can, we can tell these stories for everywhere. So can you tell some stories about abundance, uh, slash range, slash ubiquity of, of beavers? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so we, so we don't know, Exactly how many beavers, how many beavers were in North America, of course, prior to, to colonization. Uh, the best estimate we have is, is up to 400 million. Um, you know, by 1900, they were down to 100,000 after trapping. So that kind of gives you some numeric sense of how dramatic the destruction was. Um, but I mean, you're, you're right that just, you know, you, you read these incredible, uh, trappers and explorers accounts of, of what, what, uh, the land looked like. And it's, it's just incredible to me, uh, how, Dramatically, beavers influenced this continent historically. You know, when when Lewis and Clark uh, went up the up the Missouri in in Montana, you know, they saw beaver dams in every single tributary as far as the eye could see to the base of the mountains. You know, there were places where they couldn't even they couldn't even really use their canoes uh, in some of these valleys because beavers had so thoroughly dammed and ponded. They had to they had to walk along the the ridge lines. Um, because, because the, the influence of beavers was so great. You know, by, by that, and that was in 1805. By 1843, uh, John James Audubon went up the Missouri Basin, uh, so the exact same area, and he didn't, he didn't see a beaver for 2,000 miles. He, he was, he was looking for beavers to paint, uh, and he couldn't find one. So in just 38 years, you know, we, we went from having dams in every single tributary as far as you could see, uh, to this animal being completely eliminated from this vast watershed. Uh, which is pretty incredible. I mean, else, you know, elsewhere you read about, uh, explorers crossing the state of Indiana, uh, and not finding a dry place to camp for a hundred miles because beavers had, had so thoroughly ponded and, and marshed, uh, the entire place. You know, there are so, I mean, there are so many of these stories. Uh, so to me, you know, it's, it's one of the, one of the, the really tragic things in a lot of ways about reporting this book and, and researching the historic influence of this animal is just realizing yeah, how much, how much we lost, you know, and how much important habitat we lost too. You know, we know that, that wetlands are so critical to sustaining life on this continent. And, uh, you know, we lost hundreds of millions of acres of beaver built wetlands. You know, we, we just lost so much open water and, and wet meadows and, and just incredibly lush ground. So, you know, I don't think that we really think about you know, we don't, we don't think about beaver trapping in the same terms as we think about the deforestation of the Northeast or, you know, the busting of the Midwestern prairie or, or placer mining in California. 
But I, I think that we should think about beaver trapping in that way as sort of this early seminal environmental catastrophe that must have been so devastating for so many species that are, are intensely reliant on these fantastic beaver built habitats. And what, at what, what year was the, uh, nadir of this and what was the lowest number about that we know? Yeah, so probably probably around 1900, um, the beaver populations bottomed out at, at around 100,000. Uh, and again, you know, these are just sort of uh, very very ballpark estimates. But beavers were certainly wiped out of nearly the entirety of of, uh, of the lower 48. There were still some beavers out west, but they were totally gone from the northeast, southeast, uh, most of the Midwest, um, California. Uh, you know, really there were just a, a handful of pockets of beavers in, in kind of the Rocky Mountains and. Uh, the Northwest and and Canada still still had still had some, but uh, you know there's no question that that well over 99 percent of of North America's beavers were were killed during the fur trade. And what what is what is what are the numbers now? What has happened since? Yeah, so so now we you know again we're we're, we're a lot of a lot of these population estimates are just kind of shots in the dark. But uh, you know the the ones that I've seen are, are maybe 15 million or so beavers in North America. So um, you know it all depends on what your what your historical baseline is, right? I mean, from one perspective, we went from 100,000 uh, just you know barely barely over a century ago to 15 million. That's you know that's really one of our one of the the world's greatest wildlife recovery stories. You know, beavers are this this incredible success. But of course, if you if you broaden your lens um, to you know 1491, uh, we're still at at a very small percentage of historical beaver occupancy. So you know people often ask me if, if beavers are endangered, and the answer is no. There are there are plenty of beavers in in North America. I'm sure you know most listeners have have seen a beaver at some point. Um, but you know it's all about how abundant we want this animal to be. You know if, if we want to reap all of the the benefits that it's capable of providing us, you know, we 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 have a long way to go uh, in getting back to you know what what uh, a really beneficial beaver population might be. So let's go back to the to the collapse of beaver populations and uh, were the were the primary causes um, the physical trapping or was it also um, the introduction or the the putting in dams, uh, draining swamps. Um, or was it, was that sort of a synergistic effort? Yeah, you know, I think, I think that, that certainly the primary cause was, was trapping. Um, you know, that, that beavers, I mean, so, so beavers, uh, mostly trapped for their, for their, their underfur, which, which it often, trappers often call beaver wool, uh, which, which is felted into, into hats, basically. And hats were, you know, sort of all, all the rage in, in, in Europe for a, a few centuries there. And, uh, and beaver hats were, were a very hot commodity. Uh, so it was, it was certainly the, 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 the direct trapping of these animals that, that wiped them out. But you're right that, that, um, that the draining of, of wetlands for agriculture and development, um, you know, certainly made it, uh, eliminated lots of beaver habitat and, uh, made it harder for them to recover. And I, you know, I think, I think another really big impact was, was, was grazing, was the introduction of, of domestic livestock. You know, beavers, of course, require, uh, riparian or, or streamside vegetation, uh, for, for food and to, to build their dams and lodges. And, uh, you know, when you've got, when you've got herds of, of thousands of cattle uh, sort of grazing unchecked in the stream bed, eating all of that vegetation, 
uh, it becomes basically impossible for beavers to establish. So I think, I think as you say, it was kind of a, a synergistic effort where the, the primary and original uh, cause of the collapse was the direct trapping, but then the, the draining of these wetlands and uh, the destruction of all of this riparian forage, uh, you know, that was eaten by, by domestic cattle um, made, it, made it hard for beavers to recover in many places. So I mentioned before, I believe, that I grew up in the West. I grew up in Colorado and then lived in Nevada and lived in North Idaho and now it's Northern California. And the places I've lived have been rural West, which means they're very strongly anti-nature for the most part. And uh, one of the complaints I would hear um, sort of nature haters throw out against beavers is they kill trees. They kill lots of trees. They'll destroy right. a forest. Right. So, so can you respond to, to the, to the, to the notion that beavers are evil forest destroyers, says the guy holding a chainsaw? Right, right, exactly. Um, yeah, so, so, so you, 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 de- you definitely, you definitely hear that a lot. Um, and, you know, I mean, to, I mean, to that I would, I would respond that beavers, yes, they, they are, they are cutting down trees. Of course, there's no, there's no way of getting around that, but they're also producing new trees, right? I mean, they're by, so beavers are, they're almost like rotational farmers in a lot of ways, right? They, they, they cut down trees, they build these dams, they raise not only the level of the pond, but they're also raising the, the water tables, right? When, we, when you look at a beaver pond, you know, of course there's all of the visible surface water, but there's also lots of water being forced into the ground and being spread out, uh, on the, on the floodplain and, and being stored in, in aquifers. Uh, there's, you know, there's, there's incredible groundwater recharge that you get, um, thanks to beavers, which basically acts as, as sort of this, uh, incredible force of irrigation, um, that is, is actually stimulating the growth of new willow, aspen, cottonwood, um, elsewhere in the beaver complex. So, you know, so again, they, I mean, they're, they're sort of like rotational farmers in that they'll build this complex and they'll, you know, they'll cut down willows, uh, on, on one side of the pond and that will be their forage for, you know, a, a year or two or whatever. Uh, but meanwhile, you know, they're, by raising water tables, they're creating conditions for the growth of all of these riparian trees on the other side of the, their, their complex, you know. So, yes, they're cutting down trees, but they're also creating the conditions in which, in which new trees can flourish. It's kind of this, this really wonderful, uh, long-term cycle that they perpetuate. So, um, what are the causes of the increase from 100,000 to, I think you said 15 million? Yeah. Um, is it, is it simply fashion that, uh, hats went out of style? Yeah, that, well, that was, that was, that was sort of part of what, uh, what, what saved beavers, I think, originally was, was that fur was actually replaced by, by cheap silk from China that, that kind of became the, the hat style, or these, these silk top hats rather than beaver hats. Uh, but, you know, I think more, more recently there's, there's just been a lot of, um, you know, a lot of beaver conservation, reintroduction, uh, that, you know, there, there are many, many stories in which, uh, you know, many, many examples of, of these beaver populations being reintroduced and just taking off, you know, in, in, in New York, for example, you know, so the Northeast was completely de-beavered. Um, by, you know, by, by 1900, there were basically no beavers left in, left in New England or, or, or the entire Northeast. Um, and in, in 1904, uh, the some New York State biologists reintroduced around 20 beavers. Uh, some, some they got from Yellowstone, some were, uh, were Canadian beavers. Uh, so they, you know, they, they dumped 20 beavers into, into, uh, the Adirondacks in upstate New York in, in 1904. And by 1915, 
there were uh, 15,000 beavers. Um, so it's just this incredible dramatic increase, which was caused by, you know, they said, so trapping in that case was banned. Uh, we'd also wiped out beaver predators at that point. You know, there were no more wolves left in New York. Um, so that, that probably helped their, their populations grow really quickly. And, uh, you know, we also eased up on, on logging around then too. So there was, you know, there was kind of a, a greater uh, food resource for them. Uh, so I think it was a combination of things. It was, you know, it was deliberate reintroduction, um, combined with predator, predator elimination, somewhat ironically. Uh, and, uh, you know, and, and as you say, I mean, the, you know, the trapping, um, you know, trapping just, just it became less of a way of life, I think. You know, I think the trapping was such a, you know, a, a, a vital, uh, early economic industry in throughout, throughout North America. And, uh, you know, gradually as, as both fashions and social mores changed, as, you know, as, as conservation ethics developed, uh, you know, there were more restrictions or limitations on trapping and, and that, that also helped beavers recover. So I've, I've talked, I've interviewed a, a wolf person and also a grizzly bear person and I asked each one of them, what are the mechanics by which, um, I hate that word, but what are the, what are the means by which, which these creatures expand their range? And wolves, as you know, will just strike out and you can have a wolf in, in Idaho and all of a sudden you've got one in Northern California because he or she decided to move. And grizzly bears, it ends up, expand their territory pretty slowly that, um, a mother, I mean a daughter, will take up range near her mother and so it might take, you know, five generations to go a hundred miles, um, for permanent range. Mm-hmm. Males can spread around. So where I'm leading with this is, um, how, obviously if they went from however many up to 15,000 in 11 years, A, they got a lot of babies. Right. And B, can you talk about their means of natural reinhabitation? Yeah, that's a, that's a, that's a good question. So, um, so to answer that question, you need to know a little bit about sort of beaver family structure. So a typical, a typical beaver colony, a family is a, is a, a mating, a mating pair, which is, you know, sort of a, a monogamous, um, generally monogamous, uh, male and female, uh, who made, who made for life. Um, and then you'll get, you'll typically, you'll typically get sort of three successive years of offspring all cohabitating a lot. So, you, so you've got the, the newborn kits. Uh, who were born in the spring. Then you've got the one-year-olds, and then you've got the two-year-olds. And sometime during their second year, uh, those two-year-olds will go disperse, basically look out, you know, strike out and, and look for look for new territory, just like just like that that uh, juvenile grizzly bear. Um, and you know, and in looking for for new suitable territory, they can go a really long way. You know, I've I've, I've heard accounts of beavers traveling over 200. Uh, linear stream miles, and you know, and that's and that's probably pretty unusual. Um, I'm sure it's very unusual, um, but you know, they're they're capable of dis- of dispersing great distances uh, in in search of habitat, especially when you know the habitat's not great. I mean, in, in places where where the habitat is really good, where there's lots of food, lots of water, um, you know, not too many predators. Um, you know, they can they can live in in pretty uh, in pretty close proximity to each other, you know, well, you'll, you'll get, you'll get, uh, you know, a colony or two every half mile of stream. Um, uh, but, you know, in, in places, especially in the arid west, where, uh, you know, the habitat is not as good, um, they can, they can disperse many miles, uh, in search of, of new terrain. So I think it's, you know, it's really that sort of that colony structure where the, you know, all of the, the, the kits, the offspring all sort of cooperate, uh, in the dam and lodge construction. Until their second year, until they're ready to strike off on their own, 
um, that's sort of the that's kind of the mechanism that uh, allows for for pretty rapid colonization. And it sounds to me like you're saying that the when they want to find new territory, the preference is to swim up or down stream or up or down river. Yeah, they definitely. They, so they they will occasionally cross overland, but that's that's definitely not their preference. They they uh, yeah they definitely stick to the stick to the water courses. Well, that was my next question: is how do they how do they re-inhabit? That must be terribly scary and terribly dangerous for them to to inhabit a new watershed. Like say one watershed is completely is pretty filled up with beavers, and then you have a ridge line, and then you have another whole river system that's got to be a really brave little beaver to go walking across the land yeah it's you know it's it's really it, 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 it that that's definitely true i mean especially now um you know now during that kind of that that two-year-old dispersal season you know you see lots of beaver roadkill because we've you know we built we built roads through all of these wetlands um and uh you know and that's and that's really a big source of beaver mortality as well so you're right it's a, it's a very dangerous journey um and uh you know that's certainly kind of the most perilous time in a beaver's life i think is that is is, is being a dispersing two-year-old but actually you know what's, what's interesting is as, as I've, I've been um you know sort of learning and, and reading and and uh, going out and seeing more and more um these these sort of these estuary beaver colonies in in washington i live in i live in spokane and, and last week i was out in uh, in kind of the seattle area um looking at some some beavers that had that had successfully uh built dams and lodges in in sort of tidal salt marshes um, which was pretty interesting, and uh, you know, I think I think that they they do more um, ocean swimming than they give them credit for. You know, they, that that is so that's a, a method of dispersal too. Instead of having to cross over a ridgeline, swim out to the ocean, you know, hang a right and uh, look for the next the next river mouth. Um, so they're they're definitely uh, using using salt water as well to to recolonize some of these river systems. So. Maybe listeners won't care, but um, I lived in Spokane for ten years. And how are beavers around Spokane <laughs> and yeah, North Idaho? Yeah, I, I think they're. I think that they're. I mean, in, in, in the immediate Spokane area, they're, they're doing. They're doing pretty well. There are definitely lots of. I mean, you can you know go down to the uh, the Spokane River. I mean, I saw I saw a beaver in the Spokane River last week. They're they're uh, they're they're certainly uh, abundant down there. Um, and uh, there, you know, there's a, there's a cool there's a, a group here, a nonprofit called the Lands Council, um, which has done a, a lot of beaver relocation in in the area, and has uh, has definitely gotten some some colonies uh, up and running in, in eastern Washington. Uh, Northern Idaho is a good question. I'm not I'm not I'm not quite sure. There's definitely uh, you know Idaho is is kind of a different uh, political climate. There's you know there's certainly lots of, uh, of beaver animosity and still lots of trapping there. Um, I think compared compared to Washington, so I'm not sure what their status is in northern Idaho. Probably not not uh, great, but uh, around Spokane, I think they're they're doing pretty okay. So we've talked about beavers and streams. Do beavers ever live in rivers and not make a dam? They just they just make a hole in the side of the the river and then eat whatever is growing there. Yes, definitely. And I've I've seen you know, I've seen beavers in the Grand Canyon where they're they're, they're certainly not uh, not building a dam. That's just. Uh, the uh, Pierre Reclamation down there. It's the only the only dam building entity in in the canyon. Um, so yeah, the, the you know I mean the point the point of the dam is basically to create sufficient water depth so that they're safe. And if, of course, if that water depth exists without having to dam, then that's their preference. You know that they don't they don't 
they they certainly build lots of dams, but they don't necessarily want to build dams, right? That's just you know that's what they do when they have to. Um, you know they're very they're very efficient animals. I think that people often talk about you know of course busy as a beaver is such a is, is such a cliche, but I think that efficient as a beaver in in some ways makes more sense. They're not busy for the sake of busyness. Um, you know they they're certainly capable of, of taking it easy when uh, when the water depth is adequate. So yeah, they're you know in addition to the, the kind of the classic. Beaver lodge, an, an island lodge that uh, you know that most people picture when they think of a, of a beaver home. Um, you know they're certainly very happy to just tunnel into the into the banks and uh, create uh, create a, a bank burrow essentially. Um, I'm going to jump back to a subject when we're talking about the the kids leaving home or the the two year olds leaving home. Um, is there um, how do they maintain? Uh, let, let's say let's say there's a there's a whole let's say a river's pretty full mm-hmm. and or a stream's pretty full and um one of the youngsters is going to leave um how do they do they are they pretty territorial in terms of they will kick somebody out as they're walking through do they do they do they fight with them or do they just not let them in or how do they how do they maintain territories yeah, they, and they 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 definitely they definitely do fight. And often, you know, often when you when you see, you know, if you, if you were to to live trap uh, an older beaver, you know, you you often see see him or her uh, covered in covered in scars from from battle with other beavers. Um, so yeah, they're they're definitely territorial, um, and they they will fight if if necessary. And uh, you know, usually I think that those you know the, the two year olds, the sub adults are are uh, typically smaller. Um, so they, you know, I think they, they try to avoid, uh, picking, picking fights with the, uh, the, the occupants of an established territory. And you said that they live, I think you said they live like 15 years. And will there be, um, will, will the, will the, the failing somebody else coming in, will this family territory more or less be passed down for generations? Do they, can can the same family often live the same place for a long time? Yeah, you know that's a that's a good question, Derek. I mean, I, th- I, mean, I think that that certainly you see, um, you know, you you see lots of habitats continuously occupied um, for for many many years. Um, you know, I was I um, I lived I lived previously in in Northampton, Massachusetts, and there was a a, a beaver colony there uh, at a place called uh, called Lake Fitzgerald. Um, that that I heard had been and, and there was a kind of this giant lodge, um, you know, very very prominent lodge, very sort of active uh, human habituated beavers that you uh, that you often often saw out and about uh, in the evening, um, and you know I, I heard from a, a local scientist that uh, that 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 lodge had been continuously occupied since the 1950s. Um, whether that's the same the same you know whether there's a sort of a direct Genetic lineage there, whether that, that's you know it's it's inhabited by um, you know successive generations of offspring, I'm I'm not sure about. Um, I would imagine there's there's probably some kind of you know some that probably happens to some extent, um, but you know there's no question that that good beaver habitat can be continuously occupied by some beaver or another for uh, decades or, or even centuries. So, um, is is the is their culture passed on? By which I'm asking, is is um, are there techniques of dam building that can be passed on generation to generation, or is it? Um, I'm not saying this pejorative, or is it purely instinctual? 
That's a really good question. So, so I think that there, I think that the answer is that it's both, um, which is probably not a, a surprising answer. Um, so the, the, the experiment that's always cited when people talk about dam building being instinctual, um, is there's, there's this, this behavioral scientist named, named Lars Wilson, um, who in the 1960s, uh, performed this experiment where he basically put, um, put young beavers, beavers that had never that, that weren't raised by, by their parents, um, that had never seen dam building before. Uh, he put those, those young beavers in a, a concrete walled room, um, with no water in it. And he played the sound of running water through a speaker in the floor, uh, and gave, and he, and, and he gave the beavers sticks. And the beavers, uh, immediately dammed the, the, the speaker that was playing the sound of running water uh, in this in this concrete room. So that's you know that's the that kind of indicates that yes, certainly the dam the, the dam building behavior is deeply hardwired uh, in in beavers and I, um, yeah. I just have to mention that that's pretty sadistic. It's it's very very cruel. Yeah. No, it wasn't it wasn't a kind a kind experiment. Um, but it, you know it was it was a sort of illuminating one. Right. Um, so, so that's, so that's the experiment that people often say when they say, well, you know, clearly these animals, there's, you know, they're just sort of automatons, you know, they're not, um, there's no, there's no learning really happening here. Um, but, you know, I, I, in, it counter to that, um, I, I highly recommend a book called, called, uh, Lily Pond by a naturalist named Hope Ryden, um, who observed beavers for many years, um, and which she, which she documented very clearly that has also been observed by, Many other beaver scientists is there's there's so much you know that the dam and lodge building is an incredibly um, collaborative interactive exercise within the within the, the beaver colony and that and that the, and that young beavers the kids are quite clearly following their parents imitating their parents um, you know learning learning techniques uh, of of dam and lodge construction and of food and of food acquisition. Um, of tree felling, you know, there's, there's, I mean, they're, they're, they're very complex behaviors and, you know, and it's, it's, it's clear to anybody who's ever observed beavers closely that the, the that the kits are, are gaining a lot from, from their, their couple of years, uh, in the, the company of their parents. So, you know, I, I kind of think about it like, like, like language maybe in, you know, in, in, in humans or other species too. I mean, you know, of course, like the, the, the desire to speak is, is really innate in us. Um, but, you know, you don't, you don't actually learn English unless you, uh, you know, spend a, a lot of time in the company of other English speakers. Um, and, you know, I think that be- beavers are similar. Yes, clearly there's, there's a deeply hardwired impulse to dam. Um, but the, the kind of the finer points of, of that construction, uh, is, is acquired through the, the transmission of, of intergenerational knowledge. So we have about 10 minutes left and this isn't the official wind down question yet, okay. but a, a sort of starting to wind down question. Um, I'm sure you've seen that video of what happened when wolves re-inhabited Yellowstone and how there was this cascading effect of ecological enhancement um they drove the elk out of the of the riparian zones which allowed the trees to come back which allowed the trout to come back which also allowed the the songbirds to come back it's like everybody the the, the elk aren't quite so happy but everybody else is very happy Mm -hmm. and so can you can you walk us through a a 10 to 20 to 30 year period of 
a stream that's been hammered and uh, a couple of beavers walk in and then tell us about who and we can tell the same story about prairie dogs of course with burrowing owls and rattlesnakes but so tell us tell us what happens and how the land and water and and the the beings plants and animals come alive yeah and you know I should, walk I us through that process Sure. Uh, you know, should, I should say first that, that you know, I, I'm glad you brought up the Yellowstone example because, because to me, I mean, I mean, the Yellowstone is actually, yes, it's, it's an amazing wolf story, but it's also an amazing beaver story. You know, that that Yellowstone was once an incredible, um, just, just, I mean, especially the northern range where a lot of this, the sort of the trophic cascade is happening. I mean, that was once an incredible um, complex of of beaver ponds and wetlands. You know, that was such a, a lush. Uh, spectacular place, and, and when predators were eliminated, and and elk kind of ran wild and ate all of that that streamside willow and aspen and cottonwood, you know, beavers really collapsed in the park, and you know, and and now partly because wolves are returning, and you know, and 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 uh, thinning those elk herds a little bit, you know, beavers have been somewhat able to reestablish uh, in the northern part of the park and are, are recreating. Um, some of that that really wet, lush habitat. So, so, so to me, you know, I, I think the Yellowstone story is an amazing story because it sort of indicates how important beavers and wolves together are, right? I mean, you need beavers to create this this wonderful pond and wetland habitat, and you need, in many cases, you need wolves or other predators to create the conditions in which beavers can return. So, it's sort of, you've kind of got two keystone species um, interacting in a really in a really interesting way. Um, Anyway, so to return to your your original question, I mean, what happens when when beavers move in? Um, well, I mean, so it's what's what what's really cool about beavers to me is is this, this amazing sort of cycle that happens. You know, where initially they they you know they, so they build this dam, of course, and they create this this big deep pond, uh, and you know the first the first beneficiaries there are are fish. Um, you know, that's that's just that's fantastic, uh, especially rearing habitat for young. Young salmon, trout, other other species. Uh, as you know, as, as the water as the the water spreads out and the water tables rise, you know you'll get you'll get trees that uh, that that are that die uh, kind of around the periphery of the beaver pond, and those turn into snags, which turn into fantastic habitat for woodpeckers. You know who create uh, holes that are then occupied by fishers and and uh, flying squirrels and other other creatures. Um, gradually over time. What happens is that you know those those beaver ponds tend to fill in. Uh, either, wait, wait, wait. Yeah. Can, sure. can can you bring insects in too, please? Oh, sure. Yeah. Of, of course. I mean, if, so you know, we know we know that that these these beaver ponds are fantastic habitat for for aquatic insects as well, um, and that you know it's been shown by scientists repeatedly many times that you know you, you get amazing um, just production, and you know, and the reason for that, of course, is that. You're, you know, you're broadening the pond. You remove, I mean, beavers are removing these trees, so they're opening up the canopy. So you're getting all of this sunlight hitting the surface of the pond, which leads to, you know, this, this huge growth in, in primary production, right? All of this photosynthesis happening, uh, now because you've permitted light to strike the pond. Uh, and you're, so you're, you're producing lots of, of aquatic vegetation and that, you know, and that leads to this, this boom in aquatic insects, which also, you know, feeds feeds songbirds. You know, I mean, beaver ponds are fantastic places for songbirds to inhabit because they're these really wonderful kind of edge habitats where you can, you know, you can perch in a in a, in a pond side tree and fly out into the middle of the pond to snatch a, a mayfly or, or or what have you. Uh, they're great bat habitat for the same reason. Actually, beavers are. You know, people don't really think about the beaver bat connection, but bats do really well around around beaver ponds. Um, 
So I'm glad, I'm glad you brought up the insects because that's, that's a, a kind of a critical link in the in the chain. Um, so what happens gradually over time is is either you know either either the beavers uh, will exhaust their food supply and move on. Uh, or the pond will fill in with sediment, and, and gradually over time, you know, the, the pond, either the dam will breach, or the pond will just will just sort of fill in. Uh, and when that happens, you know, you get you get the kind of the growth of this entirely new plant community. You know, these lots of sedges, for example, uh, that that will grow in these these kind of wet meadows um, that replace the open water uh, from the initial pond. And when that happens, you know, that becomes fantastic fantastic foraging sites for. For ungulates, you know, for elk, deer, moose, uh, you know, black bears show up to, to eat, you know, all, all of the all of the plants that are, um, you know, the, the berries and the, the the roots that are, you know, sort of taking hold in these in these wet meadows. Um, so that's you know that's 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 a kind of a completely different kind of habitat, but a really important one. And of course, you know, those those wet meadows are really vital for amphibians as well. Um, you know, you've got. I mean, sometimes it can be hard for, you know, for for frogs to for for tadpoles and, and frog eggs to survive in a you know in a fish occupied beaver pond uh but you know as as those ponds fill in and become uh less fish habitat they, they become really great amphibian habitat um so there's there's kind of this fantastic cycle that happens as as the as the the initial beaver pond becomes a, a, a wetland and a wet meadow and then uh, gradually the forest canopy closes in again and uh, you know conditions are sort of right for the next beaver family to arrive you know and that and that process can you know it can it can take a, it can take years or it can take decades or, or centuries um, but I think that's one of the really amazing things about about uh, beaver occupied sites is just the way that they they kind of transition um, from one habitat state to another uh, over the course of, of very long time periods. So I have two two wind down questions. One of them is, um, what do you want people to take away from your book and from this interview? Your book is fantastic, by the way. Again, called Eager: um, The Surprising Secret Life of Beavers and Why They Matter. Um, fantastic book. And um, the second is, if people are already in love with beavers. Um, what can they do to help them? Yeah, good, good question. Um, so I think, I think first, you know, I, I, I think that to me the the big message of of the book is is just is is humility. You know, I think that obviously we humans are such we're such fanatical micromanagers of nature. We're so enamored of our, our kind of our godlike uh, engineering prowess. You know, and and to me. Um, you know the the lesson that beavers teach us uh, is is that you know there there are, are other species out there that are not only capable of 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 engineering but they're but they but they do it in a way that is so much more beneficial for other life than the way that we do it you know we I mean you you said before that um, you know you earlier you compared human built concrete dams uh, and you know the and the fact that they're huge anadromous fish barriers. With you know, with beaver dams, which are which are permeable to anadromous fish, you know, so so we're sort of doing the same thing, yet we have vastly different impacts on the environment. So to me, I mean, one of the one of my my favorite quotes from the book is is I you know I met this uh, kind of a, an engineer and and uh, beaver beaverologist named uh, Joe Wheaton down in Utah, and, and and Joe Joe's mantra is let the rodent do the work, you know, sort of uh, instead of instead of us. Again, you know, fanatically micromanaging nature. Um, you know, we can we can encourage this rodent, um, which is capable of storing water, improving water quality, 
creating habitat for other other creatures, uh, you know, providing fire breaks that, uh, you know, dampening the landscape against wildfire, slowing down floods. You know, beavers provide all of these incredibly valuable services uh, that we spend billions of dollars trying to replicate. Uh, and of course, they you know they do it uh, ingeniously and for free, and in a way that's that's beneficial to other life rather than than inimical to it. Um, so to me, the the lesson is: let the rodent do the work. Uh, let's let's be humble and in the face of other other species. Um, as for what individuals can do uh, for for beavers, well, I, I mean, I think that you know, for, first of all, um, you know, if, if you live in a place that that has beavers, you know, so so the you know, we look. I'm not, despite dis, for all of my love of beavers, I'm, I'm not. I'm not naive about how challenging beavers can be to coexist with, right? I mean, you know, yes, you, you're, you know, you're, you're kind of rural Western uh, folks. You know, complain that they cut down trees. Um, you know, they flood. They flood people's property. They wash out roads when they when they when they clog up culverts. You know, they they uh, they dam and irrigation ditches. You know, they do they do all of this stuff. Um, that can be, you know, that can be at times tricky to coexist with. Um, but, you know, there, there are lots of, lots of techniques for coexistence. You know, one of the, the solutions that I, I highlight in the, in the book is this thing called a flow device, which is basically, you know, you often hear it called a, a beaver deceiver. And it's basically this pipe and fence system that you can install that kind of regulates the height of the beaver pond. So you can say, okay, you know, I like having these beavers here. I appreciate all the good they do. But, you know, I don't want my, my property underwater. And you can install one of these, these flow device contraptions to, to basically manage the problem non-lethally. Um, so I think there are lots of opportunities to, to solve these beaver-human conflicts in a way that's, that's beneficial for both parties. So if you, you know, if you live, I mean, if you live in a town where beavers clogging culverts and, and flooding roads is an issue, you know, talk to your, your town roads roads department or you know or the or the state dot or the town manager or whoever the you know the person who controls infrastructure in your town is uh about about looking into these 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 flow devices or, or beaver deceivers you know these these contraptions that can kind of manage those problems without having to resort to trapping um so that's that's what that's what i would say and you know there's a, there's a really great uh non-profit out there called the, the beaver institute um which is run by a guy named mike callahan who's kind of a one of the leading champions of beaver coexistence, and that has lots of resources on it um, about you know how you can install these things and and uh, and live harmoniously with these these really extraordinary animals. Well, thank you so much for your work, and and thank you for being on the program. And I would like to thank listeners for listening. My guest today has been Ben Goldfarb. This is Derek Jensen for Resistance Radio on the Progressive Radio Network. <laughs>